take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. As we continue in this passage, in these first 11 verses, we've been in verses 1 through 4 really for a couple of weeks. And now we want to finish out this thought hopefully today. We'll see. As we come to consider the fact of the discipline of the Father. You know, if you look at this passage, 1 through 11, there is sort of a change in, uh, uh, in metaphor, if you will. In those first few verses, talking about laying aside every encumbrance, running with endurance the race, all these things, training yourselves, fixing your eyes on Him. Uh, the Word, and, and later on down in even this passage, will talk about you are trained for this. In verse 11, having been trained by it, by the discipline, the word train there, and the idea is the word that we get our word gymnasium from. And it's the idea of an athletic event. It's the idea of a coach that's encouraging us all and that's pressing us and pushing us and driving us almost to the brink in his coaching ability. But, but then he comes in verses specifically 4 through 11, and he changes that metaphor from, from the athletic picture, the, the running the race idea, to that of a father, a caring father, a loving father, a father who brings things into your life that you may not feel like you need, that you may not feel like you want, but that God, your father, knows that you do need for specific reasons. And he brings them in your life in a loving, caring, gentle sort of way, not to destroy you, not to crush you, but rather to encourage you and to lift you up and to give you more strength. We've talked about in the past how even physically we are, we are strengthened by resistance. We are strengthened by, in our physical muscles when there's resistance put against those muscles. That's why you lift weights. That's why you get on machines. That's why you do all these things. There's a resistance against the muscle. And the more you exert there... In many ways, at that point, the weaker your muscles feel, the more pressure you put on them, the more weight you put on them. But as you feel weak, you know that by doing that, you are getting stronger. And so the writer of the Hebrews is coming along and he's saying, you need to understand that that principle is true in physical life, but that principle is also true in spiritual life that you are training for a race, you are running this race, you are fixing your eyes on the one who is the author and the perfecter of this race and of your faith, and that's to be your understanding of the big picture of all of this. You know, knowing that Christ went to the cross for joy, not because it was joyful and fun to hang there and experience the wrath of God, experiencing all of, all of our sins being placed upon him and him paying the penalty of that sin. That wasn't the, the joy in and of itself. But the joy was that Christ saw the big picture. He saw what would be redeemed because of that activity on that cross. He saw what was going to take place. The apostles didn't have the big picture. They were fretting and crying and hiding and fearful and all sorts of things going on in their life because they could only see that which was right in front of their eyes. They could only see the immediacy of what was taking place. They could not see the big picture of what was going to happen three days later. 
They could not see and understand what was going to transpire by the power of God raising him from the dead, letting him spend 40 days among his disciples, and then ascending into the heavens victorious to be seated at the right hand of the Father to be constantly interceding on the behalf of his people. The, the disciples couldn't see that, so they couldn't understand it. And, and so they thought this was the end. They thought this was tragic. They thought everything's over that we've given our life for. But Jesus saw the big picture. And because he knew what was coming, because he knew the, the, the totality of what his atoning death was all about, he was able to face the cross, the scripture says, with joy and with anticipation. The same way we need to face sufferings that we have, struggles that we have, trials that we have. Uh, James said, consider it all joy, brethren, when you experience various trials. Now, if you're not a believer, you can read that verse and, and you can say, that's the most ludicrous thing I've ever heard. Consider it all joy when you have various trials, when you go through sufferings. Consider it all joy. How in the world can you consider it all joy when you're struggling, when you're suffering through the middle of this. And the point that is being made there is this. You need to recognize there's a bigger picture and God has given you that bigger picture in the scripture. You have something you can look beyond and look to and you can see what God is all about, what God is doing even in the midst of that as you focus your eyes, fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. That's vital to understand for every believer if we're going to endure and indeed see the value of suffering and trials and tribulation that comes into our life. And so that is exactly what the writer here is concerned about that we, we understand. Follow along as I start reading verse 3 because this is, this is good stuff. This is important stuff for our walk with Christ. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He says, first of all, if you want to endure stuff, consider Christ. Remember Christ. Remember what he went through. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. Now, I hope you recognize that was just read a few minutes ago by, by Brother Scott when he read the, the passage for the morning out of uh, Proverbs chapter 3. That's verses 11 and 12. He read 1 through 12, but that's 11 and 12. And the writer says, this is an important principle out of Proverbs, out of the wisdom literature, that you need to understand and make applicable in your life if you're going to face suffering, if you're going to face the trials and suffering that are going to come your way. Then verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which... Uh, of which all have become partakers, all believers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them when they did. 
Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Isn't that the truth? But sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields peaceful fruit. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now the writer here is saying, I want you to understand several things about suffering. I want you to understand several things about trials that may come into your life. Now, again, I refer back to Wednesday night in our, our, our Theology 201 study because we talked about the sovereignty of God and the control of God over all things. And you need to realize that Scripture is abundantly clear. I don't have time to go through it now from Wednesday night. If you want to get a recording of it, you can. But the Scripture is abundantly clear that everything that enters our life enters our life from God. Uh, Lamentation says both good and ill come from Him. Uh, Isaiah quotes God as saying, I have, I have produced light and I have created darkness. I have produced peacefulness and I have created calamity. And the word created there that he uses in that passage is the word that's only used in Scripture for God. It's not talking about stuff man can create or Satan can create. It's talking about that which only God can create. And God says, I want you to know, I create light and I create darkness. I, I produce peacefulness and I create calamity when it comes. Nothing gets to us as believers unless it comes first through the purpose and the will of God. Scripture's clear about that. Think about Job. When Satan challenged Job's faith to God, he said, you know, Job serves you because, man, he's got all this wealth, he's got all these cattle, and he's got all this property, and, and he's got a good family, and they've been blessed, and everything's great in the life of Job. Why, if you were to take any of that away, if any of that were to disappear, then Job would curse you. And so God said to Satan, okay, try him. You can take away anything except his life. Just, just test him, try him, see what's going on there, and see what really is taking place in Job's life. God knew what Job was made of. God knew Job's heart. Satan didn't. And, and to some degree, Job didn't. But, but through that, God said, okay, take him, test him, try him, uh, do whatever you will. And that's what took place. And Job went through some struggles. I always often laugh when we talk about somebody having the patience of Job. If you really read the book of Job, Job at times didn't have a whole lot of patience. He was asking a lot of questions and struggling with a lot of things. But he never lost sight of God. He never lost sight of faith in God, even in the midst of all that. He fixed his eyes on the Lord, clearly in the midst of that. And even when his wife said, Job, I don't know what you've done, but just curse God and die, Job refused to do that. He said, you know, though, though everything fall apart, though my world just be calamitous to the nth degree, though, though he take all the blessings away, yet will I still serve him. Yet will I still worship him. And, and you look at Job and you say, wow. It's a tremendous attitude to have in the midst of horrendous suffering. But that's the same attitude you and I are supposed to have, according to the writer of Hebrews. Because of his grace, because of his work, because he is a father. I mean, when you, when you take verses 4 through 11 and see that change of emphasis from, 
from the athletic field to fatherhood, from the coach to the father, in saying that God deals with us as sons, as family members, as, as those he treasures and those that he loves. He said, consider what you're going through in light of that. As a matter of fact, he starts out in verses 5 and 6 using the proverb, Proverbs 3, 11, 12, simply saying, remember God's word. He said, and, and you have forgotten the exhortation that was addressed to you as sons. He said, Here, here's the problem. You, you have forgotten what God has said. The exhortation is God's word that is presented to us, he says, as sons. You have forgotten what God said. And, and are we all guilty of that many times? You know, trouble comes along, tragedy comes along, we get in a difficult situation, and, and all of a sudden we just we forget what God has said, and we just worry about the circumstances. Again, it's that problem of, of dwelling on the circumstances and just glancing at God every, every now and then instead of gazing upon God and glancing at the circumstances. And we look at that and we just, we just forget. We, we forget the exhortation. We forget the truth of God that he addressed to us as sons through Solomon in Proverbs chapter 3. This, this epistle recognizes that not all who hear or read God's word will give their total attention to it, as they should. And so he gives a little bit of a challenge here. He gives a little bit of a, a jab here. You've forgotten You've forgotten the clarity of what God has said to you in His Word, in His exhortation. And I think he makes it clear here that there are some in our life who, who, make, who are just kind of indifferent to it. It starts out by saying in, in Proverbs chapter 3, uh, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. There are many people in our churches today, listen, who are just indifferent to what God is doing in their life. They, they have a, a difficult time coming in their life and they say, oh, the devil did it. You know, Satan sent that. Satan did this to me. They don't realize that it's there for a purpose, a very purposeful reason from God who is not just a sovereign king, though he is that, but who is also a loving and a caring father. But, but many times Christians ignore or dismiss the fact that God's sovereign hand is at work through through life's adversities, as well as through life's good times. We want to just kind of grant to God that which is good and, and grant to Satan that which is negative and, and, of course, never grant anything negative to ourselves or anything, but just grant it to, to some other type being. But God, God is saying through the right of Hebrews, listen, don't be indifferent to what I'm doing in your life. Are you hurting? Are you, are you suffering? Are you struggling? Okay. What is God teaching you? How is God using that to discipline you? It, it's not punishment in, in the sense of, uh, of, of punishment for your sin simply because Christ bore that punishment on the cross. If you're a believer, all your sins have been punished already in Christ. That's a glorious thought. But sometimes we as humans, especially in our families, we tend to think of punishment and discipline as being the same things we deal with our children we punish them we ought to be disciplining them 
Uh, sometimes the punishment's just you, you spank or you send them to your room or, or you, you, I never understood this term necessarily, but you put them in timeout or, or whatever you do, you know, and you say, okay, that's it. I'm going to punish you for what you did. But we never go the second step and say, here is why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's in order that you might learn to learn this principle or learn this truth in your life. That's what God's doing. God is bringing things in your life to, to get your attention, to discipline you, so that you would not be indifferent to his word. O others are overwhelmed by it. You know, don't faint when you are reproved by him. Fainting there is just being absolutely overwhelmed to the point of just saying, I, I quit. I, I don't want anything to do with this. I don't understand how God could have anything in this. They, they just give up. They're overwhelmed by it. And, and far from just disregarding what God is saying, they, they, they see what's happening and they say, I don't want anything by I don't have anything to do with it. They're weighted down by their troubles. They become despondent and they feel sure the Lord must have forsaken them. And, and the writer of Hebrews here is saying, don't think that. Don't give up. Don't be overwhelmed by it. But rather... Rejoice in it. Rejoice in it for this reason. Scripture teaches us to rejoice in our sufferings because it's the Lord disciplining us as sons. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That's good news. That's good news in the area of suffering. That's good news in the area of troubles. That's good news in whatever's going on in your life that you don't see as peachy and rosy. See, we've got this strange idea that, that the Christian life is supposed to be without any, any adversity at all. It's supposed to be without any trouble at all. Now, I've got to be honest with you, I don't know where we got that. I really don't. We may have gotten it from a, from a television program or some TV preacher or something, but we didn't get that from the Word of God. I mean, one of the last things Jesus said to his disciples, and ultimately you and me as his disciples, is that if you bear my word, you, you will suffer. If they hated me, they'll hate you. If they crucified me, they'll crucify you. I mean, I mean, Jesus was quite adamant that the Christian life is not going to be a life that is just all rosy and easy and a piece of cake. And the writer here wants us to see that the, the Christian life is a difficult life. It, it, it's, not a, it's not a life called to pleasure and to ease. It's not a life that's called to just amuse ourselves to death. Again, using the Neil Postman title of his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. We, we're not to be just about what I can get and how much I can enjoy. Listen, if we're following Christ, adversity will be a part of our life and it should not drive us to despair. It should not. It should drive us to joy. You know, truth of the matter is, uh, Satan saw faithful Job, and he said to God, he needs to be tested. He needs to be, I want to prove to you what he really is. Had Job been just floating along marginally, considering only himself, thinking only of himself, living only for himself, Satan would have challenged, Satan would never have challenged that. You see, Satan's kind of, kind of happy, quite honestly. He's content to leave most of his subjects, even those subjects who are in a church, just leave them alone in a superficial peace of spiritual apathy and ignorance. And if struggles come, if suffering comes, if difficult times come, it might actually drive us to the cross. It might actually drive us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher 
of our faith. So, so the idea is that we're not to be discouraged by it. We're not to become overwhelmed by it. We're not to, to, to just ignore it. But we're to learn to rejoice even in the midst of suffering because that suffering, that struggle is shaping us in the image of Christ. It's shaping us in the likeness of Christ. And, and it only comes to the sons of God. The children of God. Those whom He loves passionately. Those whom He loves completely. Those whom He loves as sons. I mean, I mean it says here, you know, if, if, you, if you're not receiving discipline, uh, in, in verse 8 it says, but if, if you are without discipline... Uh, of which all have become partakers, that is, all believers have become partakers. If you're without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Illegitimate. Not real. False. Phony. That's what he says. He says it's the struggle, it's the discipline, it's the... It, it's the uh, it's the adversity in your life that proves how much God loves you. Now, now, that doesn't fit with American Christianity. Let's face it. Most Christians, when any adversity comes, especially if it's any adversity because of their faith, is whoa, I don't want that. I didn't expect that. Where did that come from? It came from the hand of God, just like Jesus said that it would. But most of the Christian church are much more, even in, the, in our churches, Baptist churches, churches that we believe are, are, are doctrinally committed in many ways. You know, most of us say, whoa, whoa, I just want to trust Jesus and be happy. Just trust Jesus and be happy. But I want you to understand, we went over this in the premarital thing with my friends from Atlanta last night. Uh, the, the purpose of God in your life, whether it's in your marriage or whether it's in your just everyday life, the purpose of God in your life is not to make you happy. That may shock some of you. The purpose of God in your life is to make you holy. It's not to make you happy. Now you may say, well, I want a God that makes me happy. Well, then go find one. It'll be a false one. But if that's what you want, go find Because you won't find that in the scriptural God, in the biblical God. Now, you'll find a God that will give you great joy. But joy is far different from happiness. Joy is found in knowing Christ, living in Him, and knowing, the, knowing God as Father and as a protector no matter what's going on in your life. Happiness is always determined by the circumstances. You can only be happy if things are absolutely perfect. You can only be happy if, if everything's going like you want it to be. And, and the writer here is wanting us to understand as clearly as we possibly can that adversity, discipline, is a part of the Christian life. So he says, uh, quite honestly, just remember God's word. second thing he wants us to do here is remember God's care in verses 7 through 9. He talks about the Father. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? Now we realize that in our world, there are fathers who blow it on this issue. There are fathers who give no discipline. There are mothers who give no discipline. 
they give no guidance. They give no direction. They may give punishment, but they, they don't use it for discipline. And that messes, us, that messes up the kid if, if there's no discipline. If there's no teaching in the midst of, of, of difficulty. But he says, listen, God is going to deal with you as a father, a righteous father, a right father. And if you're without discipline, you don't belong to him. You're not a partaker. The fatherhood of God is one of the greatest gifts to the Christian. Understand I said to the Christian. It's not the fatherhood of God of all people. He is the creator of all people. But, but the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of, of individuals comes not in the world, not by physical birth, but by rebirth in Christ. And that alone. That alone. So the writer here says, I want you to understand to remember God's care, to remember that as a Christian, He is your Father, and He directs His readers uh, to that attention, to call attention to that. God is caring for them in every respect. He does it in several ways. First of all, in verse 7, when He says He deals with you as sons, there's, a, there's an intimacy there that He's talking about. There's a personableness. The idea that God treasures you as a part of His family. I mean, God really does. I mean, that, that's part of the, the gift of the atonement is the people of God gathered together as, as the church of Christ. And God treasures it. Christ treasures His bride. And He's treating you as sons. Our adoption into the family of God will not only bring privilege and security, but it will also bring adversity. And all of that goes as a part of who we are in Christ. Next, it says clearly here in remembering God's care that God corrects his children. What son is there whom the father does not discipline? A father who really loves his, his children is anxious that they should, should realize who they are, what family they belong to, their potential as such, and that they come to maturity. And without discipline, there is no, there is no maturity. There's only immaturity, childishness, and underdeveloped individuals without discipline from their father on this earth and in that he makes clear also that God God equips his children for life you know he, he, he disciplines them he teaches them he equips them for, for everything they will need in, in, in this life and everything they'll need to fulfill their call under God in this life and it's, it's great to know that God is our father you know, he says down in, in verse 10, and that's in the next point, actually, his purpose, but, but I do want to tie it in with this idea of God as Father. It said, you know, our, our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. I know I, I've got three kids. They're now 31, 28, and 25. And, uh, and when they were smaller, I... I really think I was operating out of good motives and I, I disciplined them. I, I, I cared for them as, as what I thought best, but there were times I blew it. I'll never forget the time I told my four-year-old daughter, my oldest child when she was four, that she was grounded for a month. I thought that was a good idea. And then she looked at me and said, Daddy, what is grounded? Didn't, didn't carry a whole lot of weight. In, in that particular instance with my four-year-old daughter. But, but I thought it was best at the time I said it. Of course, Retta was standing over the corner going, what's he thinking? 
But fathers do what they say, what seems to be best for the moment. Here's the good news. God always does what's best, not for the moment, but for the totality of life. God is a perfect father. Our fathers were imperfect. Our fathers blew it, some more than others, some more often than others. But, but the point he's making here is the fathers of this life don't even begin to measure up with the fatherhood of God, and he does it perfectly in every respect. In verses 10 and 11, he, he says, remember God's purpose. Here's God's purpose. Father's discipline would seem best, but He disciplines us for our good. Why? So that we may share His holiness. There it is. God's purpose is to make you holy, not happy. The true and the living God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the God who is Yahweh, I, the I am that I am, the God who is sovereign over all of His creation and over everything. If you're His child, more than just His creation, His purpose in your life is holiness. To mold you. To shape you into the image of Jesus Christ. He has no other purpose. He allows things into your life for no other reason. Some things come as sandpaper and they grate against areas of our life that need to be sanded off. Some in some of our lives like mine come like sticks of dynamite to blast stuff away. So some of you are like me rather hard-headed and it takes a little more than just a little bit of sandpaper the whole purpose is to shape you into the image of Christ the whole purpose is to make you holy now are you going to be perfectly holy in this life no 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 are you going to be just like Christ in this life no never will you won't I won't the best Christian you know won't as you define best Christian. But the reality is, it is a progression. Scripture calls it, the theological term is sanctification. We are being changed. We are being sanctified. We are being molded in the likeness of Christ in a progressive process in this life. And, and the writer of Hebrews says, understand that. Remember God's purpose. Think of the immediate benefit. He said, this is, this is so you may share in His holiness now, so that you may know His holiness now. And think of their ultimate outcome. In verse 11, the first part, all discipline is for a moment, seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, gymnasiumed by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness there's immediate benefit that we don't always like doesn't seem to be joyful seems to be difficult seems to be hard we just don't like it but it's for our good there is an ultimate outcome 
that is shaping us into Christ-likeness, that is, is going to bring about joy, that is training us. And then there's a permanent effect. It produces the fruitful, the, excuse me, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We bear fruit. Back, back in John 15, you remember Jesus when he was talking to his disciples I, I, about the vine and the branches? I almost, I almost picture that sometimes as, as right after the Lord's Supper, they're going out to the garden and they're walking along and there's, there's vineyards everywhere. And Jesus sort of reaches over and takes a, takes a vine up off, that, off a, a, some of those grapes that are being cured and get made ready for wine. And, and he says, you know, I'm the true vine. See this vine? It's just a picture of me. I am the true vine, and you see these branches coming off of it? Those branches have fruit hanging on it, but, but as I'm the true vine, you're the branches. It is you, as branches, that will hold the fruit, that will, that, that will see the production of the fruit. You will manifest the fruit. Now, the fruit is not the product of the branch. Understand that. You cut that branch off before it gets fruit on it and, and put it anywhere you want to, in a bottle of water or, or a, can, a can of water or, or a stick in the ground. That branch will produce nothing unless it's attached to the vine. Because the fruit, the nature of the fruit is in the vine. And, and you are branches that as you are attached to the vine, you, you draw forth that nature of that vine and it becomes a part of your life and fruit bears out off of your branch. Whatever the fruit of the vine is. In this case, the fruit is Christ's likeness. Stuff Paul talked about in Galatians when he said the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, you know. That's Christ's likeness that is produced in a progressive way, in a growing way, in a maturing way in the life of every believer that is a branch attached to the vine. But do you remember how he started that, that statement about the vine and the branches? Everyone that God approves, he prunes, cuts it back. That's a very, that's a, that's a very drastic thing. We, we just, a week or so ago, pruned our rose bushes had some beautiful roses last year big bushes and you know my way of thinking is man leave them alone they did great last year but red understands these things she says no you got to cut them back you got to prune them you got to you got to make them look ugly put them through misery so that they produce even more beautiful roses god puts us through struggles through suffering, through hard times, so that we'll produce more fruit. So we'll be more like Him. So He can shape us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, the writer here is, is clear. It ought to bring joy. It ought to bring training. It ought to, it may not seem joyful, but sorrowful at the moment. But afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And, and one of the peaceful fruits of righteousness, according to Paul, is joy. Count it all joy, brethren. 
Count it all joy, you who are children of the living God, through Jesus Christ. Count it all joy, church, body of Christ, when you encounter various trials. For they are not without purpose. They are not without reason in your life. They're not willy-nilly. They're not there by accident. They're not there just to kind of make you miserable. They're there to teach you a great truth, many great truths about God's power, God's sufficiency, God's love, God's graciousness, and God's protection. Tell you what, I, I'm, I'm glad I've got a father who loves me enough that he doesn't just give me everything I want. You want to really mess up your kid? Give them everything they want. Give them candy instead of vegetables. Give them, a, give them toys, every toy, every video game, every every pleasure, every entertainment, every amusement that, that they want, give it to them. Just, just lavish upon them. And if they mess up somewhere and they, they sin and they're disobedient, don't discipline them. Because that won't make them happy. Just give them more stuff. That'll make them happy. And you destroy the child. They'll become what we know as in a technical psychological term a brat. And they will. They expect only their pleasure. God loves us too much for that. He's not going to make a spiritual brat out of us. He's going to discipline us and train us and guide us so that we might bear the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of Christ. Let's pray together. When Paul was writing to young Timothy... He said in 2 Timothy 2 verse 3, he said, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. For no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, the things of the world, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. And if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive the share of his crops. Consider what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in all these things. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead. Descendant of David according to my word, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. 
For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot, he cannot deny himself. Father, teach us as Paul told Timothy to endure hardship. Granted, the Christian church today is self-absorbed, self-centered, pleasure-seeking, and want nothing to do with hardship. So in many, many cases, the gospel's watered down. The, the truth of your character is watered down. Or sometimes neglected totally. Father, I pray you do your work in our lives today through your word. I pray for men and women here that don't know you. Young people that don't know you. I pray, Lord, you would break their heart and draw them to Christ by your spirit open eyes open hearts eyes to see hearts to believe open our lives Lord to understand you we pray in Jesus name Amen